0: Looking at how Paul shared Jesus. And this week we're looking at what is really a very difficult topic about how Paul shared Jesus against the principalities and the powers. And this is not an easy topic by any stretch of the imagination. And the Bible reading itself is quite a difficult reading. Um, so, I just want to say, before we do look at this, I don't think there are any children in the room, um, but if you did have children with you, some of this may be a little bit difficult if you have a child with you. Um, so, just to make you aware of that fact. If you have got a Bible in front of you, we're, the main reading this morning is from Acts chapter 19, and it, I think it's on page 1054, if you've got a church Bible. It's also going to appear on the screen. So, go going to read Acts chapter 19, 13 to 20, and then Ephesians 6, verse 12. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of of the Lord Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they all ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their skulls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And another verse from Ephesians 6 verse 12. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let's pray together. Lord, as we've already spoken of this morning, we thank you that you are the conqueror. We thank you that the victory is already yours. We thank you for the wondrous cross that we have sung about this morning. And we thank you that even as we look at what is a very difficult passage of scripture, that we can come confident, knowing that through the blood of Jesus, through your glorious resurrection, that the enemies, the principalities and powers that would stand against you are a defeated foe. And so in Jesus' victory, we look at these verses this morning. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine a scene for a moment. You're on holiday. It's quite a nice feeling. And I don't know if if you're anything like me, but often the only time I get to read a newspaper these days is either on holiday, if I'm in um, somewhere that has newspapers lying around, or in a coffee shop. So let's think about the nicer one of those two, being on holiday. You're sat there in your comfy chair with breakfast being served, and you open a paper. And inside the paper, You read a headline, and it might be one like this. (laughs) And you're sat there thinking, who is the editor of this newspaper? How could those have got through the editing process? Particularly that one, think of a headline, 56-point bold headline. How on earth could you read that and think, actually, that is a headline? Something is missing, isn't it? You know, sometimes things happen in life that take us off guard. Sometimes, despite our best endeavors in life, things happen that have caught us unawares, that sort of sneak in via the back door, and then something goes wrong, horribly wrong, possibly quite a bit later. Today is Remembrance Sunday. We've just been remembering the horror, the scars of war. War leaves marks on communities that can last for decades, if not centuries. Some of the problems in our world that we face today go back to the time of the Crusades and even before. 101 years ago, tomorrow, the guns of the First World War fell silent. But as that peace was called, historians estimate around 17 million people were left dead. 17 million people killed because of human violence. But I wonder if we could rewind the clock a little bit further. I wonder how many politicians in those first years of the 20th century, how many politicians and monarchs who were reigning at that time could have thought that their policies, thought that the military build-up that they were allowing to happen could have actually have caused such devastation. Or I wonder whether it just snuck past them, almost unannounced. See, evil... Is sometimes out there in front of us, isn't it? Sometimes it is clear and obvious. The evils of war, the decimation of communities, of lives and families, is blatantly obvious. We can see it. We can see the devastation it causes. But other times, evil comes in, and it seduces us. It sneaks past us like the strange headline. Sometimes it charms us, and sometimes it takes roots and doesn't come till it produces evil flowers some years later on. Both the passages that we've read this morning speak of evil in different ways. The first one, in Acts chapter 19, which is the one we're really focusing on, is this kind of in-your-face evil. It's when something horrific, absolutely horrific, takes place. But then in Ephesians 6, we get Paul talking more about the kind of systemic evil, the powers and principalities that would still seek to hold sway over this world, even though they are defeated, and we will come to that. But as we look at these passages, on a day when we're remembering horror and evil, can I encourage us not to be downcast? Please don't be downcast this morning. Christ is the victor. Christ has risen from the dead. Evil is conquered. But we do need to be honest. We need to be realistic, and if we want to be biblically rooted Christians, then actually we have to come face to face with some of the problems that as Christians we will have until Jesus returns in great glory. And it is the obvious, and we'll talk about the obvious, but it is the evil that wears a charming face and would seek to come in by the back door. So evil really emerges in our, in our experience from three sources, the flesh. You know, I'm perfectly capable of doing bad things on my own without any kind of outside influences. We all are. We are corrupted, we're fallen. Even though, you know, God is working in me and he's changing me and he's transforming me, there is still the old man left inside that would want to do those things that God doesn't want me to do. And we have to be aware of that. There's then the evil of the world. You know, we live in a a broken world. There is an accumulation of human evil that exists around about us, and will try and pull us away from the things of God. And then there is the devil, the spiritual forces of evil, that can manipulate both of the other two or work entirely for their own ends. But the origins of evil, that actually when we start to talk about evil, it's a thing, it's it's an issue that Christians have wrestled with since the very first days of the church. How can a good God allow atrocities to take place. And people look at war, particularly atheists, will look at some of the horrors of war and say, Where was God? You know, how could a good and loving, benevolent creator allow such atrocities to take place as the Psalm the Holocaust, you know, where was Jesus when those planes flew into the Twin Towers at nine eleven? These are really, really difficult questions. But they're not made any easier by removing God out of the equation. You see, one of my problems with atheist arguments is that what I've heard lots of atheists do is they say, I don't believe in a God who would let that happen. And so they angrily turn their back on a God that they say doesn't exist. But there's no hope. There's no answer. All you're doing is you're turning your back and saying, well, this is a huge problem we can't deal with. But there's no way of moving it forward. What the Bible does, what God's word does, is very different. We have a narrative this morning that offers us hope, offers us assurance, and offers us total and complete and utter victory over the powers of darkness. But it also tells us, the Bible, that we are created with free will. God has made us with the capacity to love him. But in that free will, we also have the capacity to reject him, to go our own way, to do the things that actually we know we shouldn't be doing, And evil at its heart exists when both us as human beings and spiritual beings, other created beings, have rebelled against God. Don't expect evil to be rational. Don't expect evil to care anything about you. All it seeks to do is draw people away from the light and truth of God's presence. It will manipulate, it will tear down, and it cares for nobody. So, if you've got the Acts, chapter, um, the Acts chapter 19 passage in front of you, let's dive in and see what's going on here and what this can teach us today. If you were here two weeks ago, we were looking at how Paul shared the gospel through signs and wonders and how the miraculous has always been and will always be part of the announcement of the coming kingdom. Now, these verses follow directly on from what was happening before. Um, In the original language, in the Greek, there are are no sort of punctuation like we have it. There's no sort of change of topic. It just leads straight in. So this story carries on, and Luke wants us to get the drift of the whole narrative. And so what we've had is we've had all these amazing things happening. People being delivered, people being healed, people being set free. And then in verse 13, things start to unravel. And what happens is we start to get something of the counterfeit. Verse 13, there, there were some Jews who were driving out spirits. Now, this was relatively common, apparently, in the first century. There were a lot of Jewish exorcists who went around trying to deliver people from demons. And all kinds of issues were attributed to the demonic. And what they used to do is they used to go around with long lists of names, which they would use to try and drive out demons. Popular names were people like Enoch and Melchizedek and some of the prophets, and some of the ancient kings. And what they'd actually done is they'd started to hear, news had got to these seven sons of Sceva, whoever they are, we don't really know anything about them, whoever they are, they must have heard that the name of the Lord Jesus and his servant Paul were quite effective in in casting out demons. So they think, okay, well, let's tag these two names onto our regular list of all these heroes of Israel, and let's see if it works. Let's give it a go, and let's see what happens. And then we get something quite different that takes place. Because the wonders of God can never be separated from God himself. It's a very dangerous thing to seek spiritual power, but separate it from Jesus Christ. And what we see is that things go horribly wrong. And here comes the first shock. See, in the first century in a very sort of spiritually superstitious environment, there were lots of things that were hoax and fakes. A number of years ago, we were in Greece, in a place called Parga. If you're looking for somewhere nice to go on holiday, I'd recommend it to you. Um, Just in the north, up near Macedonia. And we went to this river. Doesn't that look nice? Yeah? And we swam in that river. And it it was beautiful. It was nice and cool. And it was just the colors that it looks like on that picture. Until I tell you that the name of that river is the River Styx. That's the river that in ancient Greek mythology, the boatman would take you across with his scythe into the underworld. Now, thankfully, we swam across it. We didn't end up in Hades, which which was quite a relief. But by this river, there was a museum. And in the museum, they were telling us about what used to happen. And apparently, people would go to this place to go and try and encounter their dead relatives. And so they would go into this building, they'd be given hallucinogenic, I can't even say it, hallucinogenic drugs, and they were faking a spiritual experience. That's what the Greek priests used to do. And so the whole thing was one great big hoax. I get the feeling from the way that Luke writes this, that actually these seven sons of Sceva were possibly in the, in the habit of finding things that were hoax. Not so here. Not so here. This is real and frightening what happens in Acts chapter 19. The evil spirits, they answer the sons of Sceva, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Who are you? Verse 16, the man who has the spirit jumps on them, and all seven of them end up being beaten, stripped, and bleeding, and they're chucked outside. What does this show us? Why does Luke tell us this account? Well, I think what it shows us is that biblically there is a personable reality to evil. The Bible will talk about the Satan, the accuser, fallen angelic beings, demons and spirits. You can read Revelation 12 along with all kinds of other passages for more information on that. They are not like God. There is no dualism in the Bible. God and Satan are not like equal and opposite. Satan is a created being but a rebellious being. And it's important that we don't ever make the powers of darkness anything like on God's scale. They are nothing at all like God. They are not omnipresent. They are a defeated foe. But they do still cause havoc in the world in which we live. They're a present reality until Jesus returns in glory. And the final victory is announced. Paul in Ephesians 6 verse 12 calls them the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yet it's very easy to get all this kind of stuff out of balance. And C.S. Lewis um, says this. If you ever read the screw tape letters? He he says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with equal delight. I think he's right. You know, the devils love it when people reject them because evil can then charm its way in and sneak in through the back door. Somebody who goes after sorcery and magic will have no problems in finding the powers of darkness. So what happens in verse 17 when the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus hear the news, they are seized with fear. But also the name of the Lord Jesus becomes held in high honor. See, fear can indicate many things, can't it? And the fear that we find at the start of this sort of passage is the kind of fear that seizes you with terror. I don't know if you've ever been really afraid. You know, and you're sort of gripped by that kind of fear that holds you and won't let go. But this this fear quickly then moves on to the kind of fear that motivates change. But to start with, the people are terrified. Because they suddenly realize there is a genuine spiritual battle going on. Perhaps they hadn't realized that before. We don't know. But they do, at this point, realize what is happening. Now, as Christians, as C.S. Lewis points out about the rest of, if you like, humanity, there there is a separate risk, really, for us as Christians. And that is when we start thinking about the devils, about demons, about possession, and things like that, we can either do those two things. We can deny it and say, well, these are all primitive stories and they have nothing to do with us. Or we can obsess about it, and behind every problem that we face, we can start to see some spiritual power at work. The New Testament doesn't allow us to make either mistake. It doesn't allow us to go to either extreme. We find there is a real problem of evil. Sometimes it is that harsh and unwanted truth that these powers and principalities will undermine, will seek to tear down. However, remember, it's still a defeated foe. But today, can I encourage us that we do not need to live in fear because Christ has conquered. I'll just say that again. We do not need to live in fear because Christ has conquered. Let's say it together. We do not need to live in fear because Christ has conquered. Sometimes, however, we may encounter evil as they did in Acts chapter 19. If that ever happens, we need to treat it as Jesus did, in obedience to the way Jesus did. If ever in your own personal life you feel you've encountered some kind of evil in that way, can I encourage you not to do that alone? Come and seek out those who are leaders in the church. Seek out those who have more experience in that area. In the occasions in my ministry when I've been called to anything of that nature, I would always take other people with me. Never do it on your own. But know that, again, we don't live in fear. Well, look what happens here. Very quickly from the people being afraid, it leads to people honoring Jesus and then to confession and repentance. See, evil on this occasion is blatant and in your face. But at other times, evil comes wearing a charming face. Look at verse 18. The confession is about those who believe in Jesus and are now confessing what they had done. And we start to find out there's been a lot of people in Ephesus who've had scrolls. Now, apparently, in Ephesus, there were these things called the Ephesian scrolls, which were scrolls that people would buy that were very valuable, that were full of magic, and they were full of magic incantations. And what happens is that people had been seduced by this. This was the culture, and people had bought into this kind of thing. A couple of weeks ago, it was Halloween, wasn't it? And as a church, each year, we either have a here, a light party, or we support something that's churches together in the, in the village, um, so that our young people, our children can go and celebrate, not the darkness, but the light of Jesus Christ that shines into this world. And I think that's a really, really important thing that we do. Um, J. John, the evangelist, wrote what I think was a really good article on Halloween, and on encouraging us as Christians not to have anything to do with celebrating something that might be evil but to focus all our energies on celebrating Jesus. Just listen to what he says. I'll read an excerpt from it. He says, The most dangerous evils are not the clumsy figures in skeleton outfits knocking on your door. They are infinitely better disguised. In the real world, the most deadly evil doesn't turn up with nocturnal cries of trick or treat. Instead, it tiptoes around unannounced in broad daylight. It is there in the sudden opportunity to cheat in an exam." the gentle request to submit an inflated expense claim, the boss's quiet invitation to vote in favour of something illegal. The problem with the road to hell is that it never states its destination. By focusing on the recognisable and the grotesque, Halloween obscures the fact that most evil wears a charming face. The charming face in, in Ephesus was that It was magic. It was superstitions. It was things that everybody was doing. Ever since Genesis 3, when the serpent slid its way into the garden and had that very subtle conversation with Eve, trying to tell her half-truths to get her to disobey God, evil has been doing the same thing ever since. Evil often sneaks into our lives, masquerading as a good experience. The horrors only come later. You know, very few alcoholics or drug addicts set off with the purpose of becoming an an addict. It's the charm of the high, the extra bit, the repeat of the experience. Very few people head off to have an an extramarital affair. But it starts with being charmed, with being seduced, with being pulled into something that leads to problems. Gambling addiction, the promise of extra money, lures people in. Rampant materialism. The idea that we just buy our way into happiness just around the next corner, the next thing, the next holiday. That's the thing that will get us there. And yet what we found, just as Eve did in the garden, is that these things that come with half-truths enslave us, bind us, and prevent us from having all the freedom that Christ wants us to have. Some evil will be blatant. It will be the verse 16 type of evil. Others slide its way in and subtly... Gets under our skin. But in verse 18 and 19, what we see happening is that this fear turns into repentance, turns into confession. You know, it's good to fear unrepented sin, actually. It's good to fear those things that will destroy us. But it needs to lead us to that place at the cross where Jesus offers us forgiveness. What about us today? I'm guessing that we probably haven't been ensnared by magic scrolls. But there may be those things in our life that has got a grip of us, that is holding us, that is preventing us from being all we're called to be in Christ Jesus. But now we come to the very good bit. Colossians 213 to 15. Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The incredibly good news this morning is that the evils that have created the horrors of war, the evils that find themselves masquerading in our world, Even the evils that make their way into our own hearts are defeated. Absolutely and totally defeated. On a day when we remember the death caused by war, let's remember as well with great confidence that evil is a defeated foe. Let's look forward to that day of the second coming when evil is once and for all done away with. Look at verse 19. Look and see how this practically works itself out. A number of people who'd been practicing sorcery brought their scrolls and they actually burned them in public. And there is a financial value to these scrolls. Now, 50,000 drachma, it's quite difficult to work out exactly how that is in today's money. But one estimate says it's about three million pounds. It's an awful lot of money. These are incredibly valuable things. And yet what these people did to honor the name of Jesus, they said, well, actually, we just need to get rid of everything that holds us back. Because Christ died for me, there is nothing too big, too significant for me to get rid of in order to publicly say Jesus is Lord. Verse 20, what happens? The word of the Lord grew. It grew widely and in power. In power. See, when we follow Jesus, when we turn our backs on those things that would hold us, the word of God grows not only in us, but it is demonstrated clearly to the people round about us. So I want to ask us a couple of questions. What is holding us back today? Are there things that are holding you back in your Christian life? What are the scrolls that you're clinging on to? Are there things in your life that are actually preventing you from being all you can be in Jesus Christ? You see, there are these things that will charm the way in. And before we know it, we've lost some of our freedom in Christ. Or we've lost our joy. Or we've lost our sense of purpose that Christ is calling us to. Now, it may be some of those things that we've mentioned. But it may be actually things like unforgiveness or bitterness. It may be that we've got trapped into a way of talking that is gossiping and pulling other people down. It may be that we've got hateful attitudes in our hearts that are actually pulling us away from Christ and we have succumbed to the charm of evil. It might be, as J. John mentioned, those things that creep into the workplace that mean that we're actually not working honorably and honestly, as Jesus would want us to. The good news this morning is that only God knows what's in your heart. I have no idea what's going on in your life. You have no idea what's going on in the the inner bit of my heart, but God knows. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. What is it? What are those scrolls that perhaps we need to bring into the light of God's presence? There's a bit of a scary encouragement from this passage as well. You know, we're very good at being individualistic, I think, in our, in our society. And we, we do things on our own. And so, you know, if I say, well, let's, let's pray and let's deal with that on our own, we'll, we'll probably all shut our eyes and look prayerful and say something to God. What happens here? This happens in public. This happens in public. Now, I'm not, do not worry. I'm not going to take the microphone around and say, who wants to confess their sin this morning? That would be deeply inappropriate. But I think there is a sense in which, you know, if we're going to confess and we're going to move on and let go of those things that would hold us back, it can't just be something we do in isolation. This is where we need our small groups or our trusted friends or just one person you might be, be accountable to to sort of say, actually, I'm making a stand on this. I'm actually going to put these things behind me that stop Jesus being Lord in my life. These things, I don't know where they've originated, but they've actually got a grip. They've turned into sin. I've fallen into ways that Jesus isn't calling me. See, the charm of the world and the devil will seek to pull us away. Jesus always seeks to draw us close to him. The whole of this sermon series has been about how we share the good news. How do we share Jesus? How do we share Jesus in a world that is beset by all the kind of evils that we've been looking at this morning? How this remembrance day, when we think about all the horrors of war, do we light in the darkness? Well, next Sunday, we'll be starting a, a short sermon series in the book of Micah. If you know anything about the prophet Micah, it's, it's full of prophecies that point us forward, point us to the coming of Jesus. And to all the ministry of Jesus that will follow on. And we'll be working through that up to Christmas. Not long till Christmas now. And at Christmas we'll hear again as we do every year. those amazing words from the beginning of John's gospel. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. In that same passage it talks about how John the Baptist was meant to be a witness to the light. He wasn't the light. But he was a witness to the light. How today are we going to shine for Jesus? Well, it's about knowing what Jesus has done for us. It's about being prepared, like Paul was, to give an answer in season, out of season. It's about being prepared to argue for Christ with the intellectuals in Athens, whoever those people are in our own life. It's about being prepared to take those bold prayers that actually we say, Lord, would you do something miraculous in somebody's life to point people to you? And it's about making a stand, as we see in this passage, against that which would seek to destroy and rob us of joy in Jesus Christ. Do we believe the conqueror has risen this morning? Amen. Amen. Do we believe that Jesus sets us free? If those things are true, then there is nothing that we can give up that isn't worthy of Christ. So can I just encourage you today? This is not an easy topic. It's not easy to talk about evil. It's not easy to talk about the principalities and powers. They will seek to destroy. They will seek to rob. Sometimes it will be blatant. Sometimes it will be very subtle. But this remembrance day, can I encourage us to remember Jesus, who calls us to shine in the darkness, the great God who has conquered evil, so that we can live in freedom. Let's pray together. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came as light of the world. We thank you that you shone into the darkness that was holding us. We thank you that by your sacrificial death on Calvary, When we turn to you in repentance and faith, we can know the forgiveness of sin. We thank you that at the cross you announce your victory over the powers and the principalities. And so, Lord, this day we just pray that if there are things that are holding us back, Lord, help us to have the courage to bring them into the light of your presence. Let's just leave a moment, perhaps, of quiet. Perhaps there are things, whatever those scrolls are in our lives that we just need in the silence to to bring before God. Just a moment of quiet. Lord, the victory is yours. Lord, we come and we worship you. We adore you for all that you have done. Lord, you are robed and clothed in majesty, you are high and exalted. Lord, we pray that there will be the reality of that knowledge in our hearts and lives this week. Amen.